from at two o'clock, which is my most appropriate, and we're very grateful to have been allowed to sit here in the library to talk about the library scene in Ulysses. Urbane, to comfort them, the Quaker librarian purred. And we have, have we not, those priceless pages of Wilhelm Meister, a great poet on a great brother poet. We are transported into the librarian's office upstairs in the library, and present in the room are Lester, the librarian, Mr. McGee, who's an assistant, and this episode is rather confusing in so far as two people in the episode have two names. McGee wrote under the name of John Eglinton, so we have references to Eglinton and we have references to McGee, and we have to remember that that's the same person. And then we have George Russell, who also wrote under the pseudonym of A.E. And then, of course, Stephen is there as well. The schoolmen were schoolboys first, Stephen said super politely. Aristotle was once Plato's schoolboy. We don't know why he's there, but presumably he's there because A, he seems to know that A.E. George Russell would be there, who has something to do with uh, the Irish homestead where he wants DC's letter to be published, or else he's fulfilling a promise to talk about Shakespeare to Haynes. Lister, in the chapter, keeps on coming and going. He doesn't stay there. And then, just as it's starting, Richard Best comes in, who is also working in the library, and it turns out that he has been seen off Haynes, who was there, and Haynes has gone to Gills in O'Connell Street, and he was going to get the love songs of Connacht there. It would also appear that Haynes may have had uh, an appointment to see Mulligan, in the National Library, so Mulligan is going to be disappointed by Haynes going off. Anyway, he's gone, one way or the other, and he refused to come in to meet Stephen. So, in other words, he's not interested in what Stephen's views of Hamlet are, or anything else. But Hamlet is so personal, isn't it? Mr Best pleaded. I mean, a kind of private paper, don't you know, of his private life. Best speaks about Hamlet, which gives Stephen his opening to talk about Shakespeare. He says that Shakespeare played the ghost in Hamlet and he had been cuckolded by his brothers uh, with Anne Hathaway. Stephen said that Anne Hathaway was a great influence on Shakespeare's plays, while the others say in Shakespeare's life Anne Hathaway was just a mistake, to which Stephen reacts rather angrily, saying, Bosh! Stephen said rudely. A man of genius makes no mistakes. His errors are volitional and are the portals of discovery. It seems that Anne Hathaway took the initiative with Shakespeare originally in their relationship. At this point, George Russell says he has to leave, so he's not interested in what Stephen has to say. But he talks about George Moore's soiree that's going to happen that evening, and it appears that everyone present is going except Stephen, who hasn't been invited. It appears that even Mulligan has been asked to bring Haynes along. And then it turns out that A.E. is compiling an anthology of young Irish poets. And again, all the well-known poets, Cullum and the rest, are included, and Stephen is not. In spite of having had a poem published in the, the magazine which McGee edits Dana, so he is known to be a poet, and a publishable poet, and yet A.E. is not having anything to do with them. He, However, he does take the letter 
and says something to the effect, well, if there's room for it and if the editor thinks it's uh, the normal thing that someone who, who would say when they'd be getting a letter for publication, I have to read it, see what it's about and all the rest. Stephen goes on to say that the tragedies that Shakespeare wrote reflect his life and the mood of Shakespeare's writing only changes with the birth of his grandchild. Anne Hathaway made him a ghost through her seduction of him. He is a ghost, a shadow now. The wind by Elsinore's rocks, or what you will. The sea's voice, a voice heard only in the heart of him who is the substance of his shadow. The son, consubstantial with the father. And then we hear from the door. Responded from the doorway. Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? Entreact. A ribald face, sullen as a dean's, Buck Mulligan came forwards then, blithe and motley, towards the greeting of their smiles. My telegram. You were speaking of the gaseous vertebrate, if I mistake not, he asked of Stephen. And this, of course, is Mulligan arriving. And Mulligan is the last person that Stephen wants to see at any time, but particularly at this time. He's told, of course, that Haynes had just gone and that it's a wonder that he didn't meet him going out, but Mulligan explains that he was in the museum, like someone else we know, Bloom, and he takes out the telegram that Stephen had sent him from College Green to the ship, which is a distance of only about a quarter of a mile. The sentimentalist is he who would enjoy without incurring the immense debtorship for a thing done. Signed, Dedalus. Where did you launch it from? The Kipps? Oh, College Green. Have you drunk the four quid? The aunt is going to call on your unsubstantial father. Telegram! Malachim Mulligan, the ship, Lower Abbey Street. Oh, you peerless mummer. Oh, you priestified kinshite. And anyway, he dramatises himself, Haynes and Mulligan, waiting in the ship, dying of drought, and Stephen not showing up. And we to be there, Mavrone, and you to be unbeknownst, sending us your conglomerations the way we to have our tongues out a yard long, like the drouthy clerics do be fainting for a pussful. <laughs> Stephen laughed. And of course, it's even worse when we remember that uh, Stephen had been drinking in Mooney's, which is a couple of doors away while they were still there. And then he says that the tramper saying is out to get Stephen for urinating on his door out in Dunleary, or Kingston as it was, uh, and uh, Stephen reacts very sharply and says it was Mulligan who did that. Me? Stephen exclaimed. That was your contribution to literature. Buck Mulligan gleefully bent back, <laughs> laughing to the dark, <laughs> eavesdropping ceiling. Murder you! He laughed. At this point, an, in, uh, an attendant comes in and Lister has to go out to attend to someone who's looking for the Kenny people. This, we assume, is Bloom looking for his ad, the original of the ad. Freeman's Journal? Kilkenny people, to be sure. Good day, sir. Kilkenny, we have certainly. A patient silhouette waited, listening. Steve goes on to say that Shakespeare had been 20 years in London while Anne was languishing in Stratford and the only thing we know about Anne Hathaway during this period is that at one time she had to borrow 40 shillings from her father's shepherd. During this time she did commit adultery with Shakespeare's brothers and this was why Shakespeare having discovered this left her the second best bed. Left her his second best, best to bed, second best, left a bed. 
Shakespeare's father had died when he wrote Hamlet. He was therefore no longer a son, but he was a father. The brothers' names, Richard and Edmund, appear as villains in the plays that Shakespeare wrote. At this point, Lester has to go out again, and there's a certain interruption, and to see Father Deneen, who's the great Gaelic lexicographer. Stephen claims that the usurping and adulterous brothers, you might say, were always with Shakespeare, and he's asked then, does he believe in what he's saying? No, Stephen said promptly. Are you going to write it? Mr Best asked. You ought to make it a dialogue, don't you know? Like the platonic dialogues Wilde wrote. John Eclecticon doubly smiled. Well, in that case, said, I don't see why you should expect payment for it, since you don't believe it yourself. Mulligan then says, Come, Kinch, the bards must drink. Can you walk straight? And on their way out, they see the person whom Bloom had seen in the Westmoreland Street, Cashel Boyle O'Connor Fitzmaurice Tisdale Farrell, signing himself into the National Library. He also gets a glimpse of a girl, someone he knows, just as he's passing out. Mulligan says that he and Haynes had gone to the Abbey, which is strange because it wasn't set up till December 1904. It was then the Irish Literary Theatre. And Mulligan then rebukes Stephen, quite rightly, because of a review he had written of one of Lady Gregory's books. Stephen seemingly had slated it, and the editor of the newspaper was rather annoyed. Then Mulligan has the idea for a very vulgar play, and he gives the dramatis personae of the play, which is funny enough in its own way. Every man his own wife, or a honeymoon in the hand, a national immorality in three orgasms, by Bollocky Mulligan. And it reminds Stephen of how he had been drunk one night outside the Camden Hall, and that the people coming out had to step over him. And then, as they're going out the door, Stephen, as on the beach, felt that someone was behind him. And this time there is someone behind him. It's Bloom, who passes out between them and greets Mulligan. And that's it. A man passed out between them, bowing, greeting. Good day again, Buck Mulligan said. Again, there isn't very much happening. There's a lot of talk here, and it's not easy to follow. There's a lot of literary talk. And in some way, I always say, the chapter is not readable if you're a very conscientious reader. If at every turn where something is mentioned, you were going to inquire what it is, you wouldn't get very far. The first mention is of Goethe's Wilhelm Meister. Then you have Blake, you have Dante, you have Aristotle, Plato. The chapter is saturated with allusions. Um, I mentioned this so that... One isn't discouraged by not understanding it. My cask and sword. Touch lightly with two index fingers. Aristotle's experiment. One or two. Necessity is that in virtue of which it is impossible that one can be otherwise. Argyle, one hat is one hat. It's strange. Steam works so hard at being <coughs> an outsider. And yet he also resents not being invited. It's that strange kind of dichotomy. Yes, you see, this is the contradiction in his character. He acts as though he doesn't care about anyone, what anyone thinks of him. And if anyone thinks well of him, he more or less bites them to make Mm -hmm. sure that they don't. And then we find him here showing off, trying to impress people, 
who won't even listen to mm-hmm. It is this hour of a day in mid-June, Stephen said, begging with a swift glance their hearing. The flag is up on the playhouse by the bankside. The bare Sackerson growls in the pit near it, Paris Garden. Canvas climbers who sailed with Drake chew their sausages among the groundlings. Local colour, work in all you know, make them accomplices. Bloom here plays a marginal role. He comes to look up his Kilkenny paper and a librarian comes out with him and then in the end again they they see him. And it also turns out that when he wanted to look, since he had been in the museum, when he wanted to look at the goddess, Buck Mulligan surprised him and defeated him. So again, it's not the person you would like to be behind you. What's his name? Ike Moses Bloom. He rattled on. Jehovah, collector of prepuces, is no more. I found him over in the museum when I went to hail the foam-born Aphrodite, the Greek mouth that has never been twisted in prayer. Every day we must do homage to her. Life of life, thy lips enkindle. He hands in a, a card, and Mulligan turns it up and finds his name and calls him Ike Moses. Mm-hmm. So, <coughs> from Mulligan's point of view, Bloom is a Jew. Mm. And he also mockingly, when Bloom walks between them out of the library, he says, The wandering Jew, did you see his eye? He looked upon you to lust after you. I fear thee, ancient mariner. Oh, kids, thou art in peril. Get thee a breech pad. Get thee a breech pad warns him as though Bloom were some kind of homosexual mm. danger for which, as far as I can see, there's no evidence uh, whatsoever. Mm. But Mulligan is, of course, the one who always makes a lot out of nothing. He, in a way, his role is he plays a Shakespearean fool. And we, one hour and two hours and three hours in calories, sitting civil, waiting for pints apiece. Joyce is also a bit unfair, or certainly Stephen, to the librarians. I mean, they were really intelligent people. He mm. makes them uh, appear a bit ridiculous and all of that. It turns out, uh, I didn't know that before, that Best actually was an, e- an expert on Shakespeare. had written mm. a book about it, so he's not just uh, name-dropping. He, he knows what he's talking about. Again, we have to emphasize, this is a work of fiction with real names being yeah. used, but mm. not the characters necessarily. We both sort of feel uneasy about what exactly it is that Stephen proposes. I mean, you have to always have a new, a new idea, a new slant. And one of the things he probably say, thinks is, one always assumes that Shakespeare projects himself into Hamlet, who is, after mm. all, uh, one of the most important uh, figures, easy to identify with. But he says, no, Shakespeare himself identifies with the ghost, the dead King Hamlet, mm. who, who was murdered. And Shakespeare himself had a son, Hamnet, mm. who died very early. And as you said, what seems to have rankled on uh, Shakespeare's soul and mind or psyche is that he was seduced by an older woman. This seems to be something that he had to work off in his plays and even says Don Giovannism, meaning playing the seducer, could never quite erase this. This, of course, brings the chapter close to psychoanalysis. There's even a reference to the Viennese school, which must have been Freud. Whether Freud at that time was already common knowledge or not is another question. But it is a kind of um, psychological interpretation. Obviously, Stephen has been doing this for a while, um, that he proves by algebra something, Mm -hmm. and Stephen, in fact, does use a kind of algebra, a kind of analogy. He says, is it possible that 
Shakespeare, who played the role of the ghost, uh, that, mm. that's also a fact, did not also reflect on his own wife, on Anne Hathaway. Uh, he said, could you not see these mm. parallels? He really works in algebraic parallels, mm. and there's something like this. There is usually a, a family, wife, husband, a son, and an outside seducer. Mm. This would be in Shakespeare's life, Anne Hathaway, the son Hamlet died and plays no further role, and the brothers would have seduced her. And Richard and Ed. He gives them bad names, mm. or he uses their names in yes. for bad roles. This would contribute to Gertrude, the unfaithful mm. queen, uh, Claudius, mm. uh, the usurper, the ghost, of course, and Hamlet. Uh, Stephen mentions Penelope Steyart, uh, mm and Hathaway like Penelope. So he brings in the Homeric thing, and there, of course, we have the same pattern. We have Odysseus, we have a son Telemachus, we have a, a faithful Penelope, but we have suitors trying to mm. seduce her. And then there's even a reflection to the Holy Family, where we have God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost, who, in the actual family with Joseph, it would have been the seducer, and we have the Virgin Mary. And in Don Giovanni, the emphasis is on the seducer. And then, of course, we might think of the family we know with Bloom, the son died, as in Shakespeare's mm. case. We have Molly, and we have, somehow hovering on the horizon so far, we have Boylan. This is a kind of algebra that uh, Stephen seems to work out. Is it possible that the player Shakespeare, a ghost by absence, and in the vesture of buried Denmark, a ghost by death, speaking his own words to his own son's name, had Hamlet Shakespeare lived, he would have been Prince Hamlet's twin. Is it possible, I want to know, or probable, that he did not draw or foresee the logical conclusion of those premises? George, of course, puts in many contradictions because there's also the notion that it wasn't Shakespeare who wrote these plays. It was oh, some, yes, some, yes. So Shakespeare <laughs> may not be Shakespeare at all. Yes. Then everything would go past. And another element is that it, when A.E. says, what do we care about how the poet lived, the, the poet's debts? Because mm. documents of debts are usually the ones that remain, you know, bills, mm. Mm. unpaid bills and all of that. And that triggers off in Stephen's mind his own debts to people including A.E. A.E., I owe you. Then, for a short moment, he says, but the person that borrowed it months ago is not, biologically speaking, the identical person because cells change. And he said, wait, five months. Molecules all change. I am other eye now. Other eye got pound. Buzz, buzz. But I, entelechy, form of forms, am I by memory because under ever-changing forms... What is also built in is the question of who am I through the whole time from a baby to now? Am I still responsible? Am I still the same? Is Shakespeare really Shakespeare? So it's a question about identity, which again links up with names. Shakespeare used particular names of his brothers, Stephen thinks, for a certain purpose. And in this chapter, by the way, names are no longer safe. They can be played with. He plays with best, second best bed. He plays with Eglinton, that is once done as Eglinton, uh, like a, a Chinese character and, and mm. so on. Buck Mulligan becomes Cuck Mulligan, becomes Monk Mulligan and all of that. The way, by the way, Shakespeare also mm. played with names. There's a lot of wordplay in this. Left are his second best, best of bed, second best, left of bed. And Joyce is also settling scores. I mean, obviously, he, George Moore... The Buck Mulligan refers to him as Monsieur Moore. He said, 
lecturer on French letters to the youth of Ireland. No one regards, at least very few regard, more today. But Moore in 1900 was an international figure. He was oh, yeah. big on the European scale. Oh, yes. The fact that he came back here was a very great boost to the literary renaissance. Mm -hmm. He was someone who had written books that mattered yeah. and were bestsellers. He was uh, reckoned to be the person who was going to write the great Irish epic. The most beautiful book that has come out of our country in my time. One thinks of Homer. It's interesting how Joyce sneaks in that reference. Yeah. Uh, the most beautiful book that come to come yeah, out of Ireland. One yeah. thinks of Homer. Yeah. So ironically, uh, in an indirect way, uh, Joyce puts in Homer. Um, the Homeric tag here, Scylla and Charybdis, again, doesn't make too much sense. Mm -hmm. uh, Joyce puts in all kinds of contrasts. Scylla and Charybdis, we remember, you have to sail between two, one was a, a rock and the monster where you could be dashed, the other was a whirlpool. And so Joyce puts in all kinds of things, Stratford as against London, Plato against Aristotle, biographical approach against uh, aesthetic approach, between the devil and the mm -hmm. deep blue sea, all sorts of things. But uh, it may appear a little bit strained. And here you can really I do without. Without, you don't have to, mm -hmm. to go into this. This, this was not the art what I was going to say was about this chapter is there are two distinct halves to it. I mean, when Mulligan comes, Stephen stops talking, more yeah, or he, less. Yeah, he becomes silent for a yes, long time. Yeah, yeah. And, but we were only about halfway through the chapter. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why Joyce did that. I mean, it's a broken chapter. It's uh -huh. not a continuous thing. Uh -huh. It doesn't strike me that much as it does you that it calls it the dwarfs. But I notice when Bachmann always instantly takes over. He's the kind of person who is who is the center of it. And of course, Stephen wants to be the center for once. By the way, Stephen's thought, and he must have pondered on it for a long time and looked up. Uh, he, we know what books he used and all mm. of that. But it's wasted on a very small audience. At times there are only two people here. Sometimes there are four, but it's not really a great. Uh, no, great it takes, uh, no, McGee is the only one that mm -hmm. listens to it yeah. through the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Best had come in late. A.E. went off to us. Uh, mm -hmm. Lester was coming and going, yeah. as mm -hmm. I say. A again, there's a choreographic element to yeah. this coming, yeah. uh, people yeah, yeah. coming and going. Uh, and it's a great verbal uh, waste, come to think of it. Hmm? Yeah. Well, it's obvious that this is not the first time that Stephen has trotted this thing out. I suppose he's looking for an audience. There is, I feel in the words, some gold of the flesh driving him into a new passion, a darker shadow of the first, darkening even his own understanding of himself. A like fate awaits him, and the two rages commingle in a whirlpool. They list, and in the porches of their ears I pour. Why do you think that everyone throws Stephen out? Well, I would say I wouldn't particularly uh, have him at the party. He always comes with a rebuke or a, the, the wet blanket or something. He tends to be rude. He doesn't have great entertainment value, and when he says something, it's rather cryptic. Whereas Buck Mulligan, at least for one evening, he would like to have. He's entertaining. He's particularly erudite, Stephen, in this yeah, 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 he's erudite, but I mean, in the first place, the part you don't necessarily want to hear about Shakespeare. Uh, I can understand it. I mean, I say an impossible person. Yes, but they're very rude. I mean, they talk openly about it, and they realise that he is not going, and they uh -huh. say everyone will be there, mm -hmm. uh, everyone bar him. I mean, uh, can you imagine a, a group like that?
Shall we see you at Moore's tonight? Don't forget this, that Stephen is not invited. It's not quite as clear to everybody who reads this for the first time. Uh, these, that, that's something easily overlooked. Don't forget, one is so totally confused in what are they talking about. Mm. That uh, these things, as you're quite right, it's there. Uh, and once you recognize it, you, you wonder about mm. it. Uh, I would even bet that hardly anyone would notice that who who sails through mm. the skillers at Charybdis of, of this. <laughs> and and for, for the reader, it's certainly full of monsters and whirlpools yeah. and things like that. Yes, well, well then, even taking that, that is cryptic mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. a pain in the face, he is a poet who yeah. has been paid for his poetry in Dana by McGee, so they recognise that he has mm -hmm. something to say, mm -hmm. and yet A.E. will not even consider him. Now, that is a slap yeah. in the face. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's also not quite true to what happened where A.E. was extremely Oh, helpful. yes, 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 yes. Mm -hmm. Again, you yeah. see, we keep on drifting into fact and fiction, and we have to stay in the Ulysses, yeah. as it were. In the Ulysses, yeah, yeah. Russell is distant, even taking the letter. Thank you very much, Mr. Russell, Stephen said, rising. If you will be so kind as to give the letter to Mr. Norman. Oh, yes, if he considers it important, it will go in. We have so much correspondence. I understand, Stephen said. Thanks. Good ill you, the pig's paper. Bullock befriending. To come to the main, hard to say what is mm. the main thing. I mean, Joyce, who has already taken on Homer by boldly putting mm. Ulysses on the mm. title, now also takes on Shakespeare. Mm. And they also say, uh, somebody says, next to God. When all is said, Duma Fis, or is it Duma Pair, is right. After God, Shakespeare has created most. When they're leaving the library, we know that at least we have an idea that Stephen is going to break with Mulligan, with whom, as we remember from the first episode, he's living in the tower, and we don't know whether he's going to go back to the tower with him or not. But Mulligan has no idea of this. It's a one-sided thing. Through the doorway, feeling one behind, he stood aside. Part. The moment is now. Where then? If Socrates leave his house today, if Judas go forth tonight, why? That lies in space which I in time must come to ineluctably.